As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You would think that a car being driven by a military man... More specifically, a U.S. Army sergeant home on weekend leave would be a particularly safe place to be in 1957. But for Margaret Harold and her Army sergeant boyfriend, who were out enjoying a date on June 26, 1957, it would prove anything but. Driving along a quiet stretch of road outside of Annapolis, Maryland that night, their car was forced off the road by a stranger driving an old green Chrysler. As they sat on the edge of the road, confused by what had just happened, a man approached the driver's side window, which the soldier boyfriend rolled down and demanded to know what was going on. It was then that Margaret Harold and her soldier boyfriend saw that the mysterious man who had forced them from the road held a gun. He demanded cigarettes and money, but that was certainly a ruse, because when the couple couldn't provide either, he shot Margaret Harold in the side of the face with the 38 revolver. The soldier boyfriend bolted from the car and ran through field after field, searching for a farmhouse from which he could call for help. But help would be too late for Margaret Harold, and for at least four more people who would find themselves at the mercy of this mysterious man who stalked the roads of Maryland and Virginia in the late 1950s. This is the story of serial killer, Melvin David Reese, a.k.a. The Sex Beast. Hello, friends. I'm your host, Jenny. Welcome to Vile, Virginia.
Margaret Harold's boyfriend finally found a farmhouse after frantically sprinting through several rural fields. There he called police for help. By the time cops picked him up and they had already located the car parked at the edge of the road where the man had forced them. Outside of the car lay the body of 36-year-old Margaret Harold. She was dead from the bullet wound to the head, but she was also partially unclothed and had been sexually assaulted. A manhunt ensued for the mysterious man who had murdered Margaret Harold, and as searchers fanned out across the countryside, they stumbled on a rundown cement outbuilding with a broken window on one side. Inside, they found what appeared to be the lair of a highly disturbed individual. There was a collection of graphic pornography and autopsy photos of women were pinned to the walls. There was also a University of Maryland yearbook photo of a woman named Wanda Tipton. Detectives tracked down Wanda Tipton, asked if she knew anyone who matched the description of the tall, dark-haired man who had attacked and murdered Margaret Harold. She denied knowing anyone that fit that description. From there, the trail for the killer went cold. A year and a half later, on the bitterly cold winter night of January 11, 1959, the Jackson family, Dad Carol, Mom Mildred, and young daughters Susan and Janet, ages 5 years and 18 months, were on their way home from Richmond, Virginia. They stopped at Mildred's parents' house in the little settlement of Buckner, right outside of Fredericksburg. The mood was light as Carol Jackson had just gotten a new job at a bank in Louisa County. Around 9.30 that night, the Jacksons said their goodbyes and headed home. It's important to remember, if you know the area around Fredericksburg, that this was long before Interstate 95 sliced its way through the area, bringing with it those endless high-travel tendrils that we know today. Route 3 was little more than a two-lane cow path. The city limits of Fredericksburg were much smaller, as this was before it would eventually reach out and swallow up acres of farmland that would become home to super Walmarts and old navies. Typically, Carol would have taken a small dirt road the 15 miles from his in-law's house to their own small bungalow in Apple Grove. But it was late and very cold, and he had two little kids in the back seat. That night, he chose to use the hard-topped Route 609 instead. Then, the family disappeared. The next day, many people saw the Jackson family's car abandoned on the side of the road, but nobody thought anything of it. It was hunting season, and lots of people simply pulled over and walked into the woods to hunt. But that evening, a woman named Mrs. Ballard happened to drive by and recognize the car. She knew it belonged to her niece Mildred and her husband Carol. Worried, she immediately called Mildred's parents, who rushed to see for themselves. They were chilled by what they found. The keys were still in the ignition. Mildred's purse was on the dashboard. Baby dolls and bottles lay scattered on the back seat. But the family was nowhere to be found. Mildred's parents immediately contacted the police. And after there was no word of the family at their home in Apple Grove, a widespread search was launched. 
A neighbor close to where the car was found reported that she had heard tires screech the night before and voices raised and a commotion, but that it had stopped rather quickly and she had thought nothing of it and gone back to bed. When word reached the newspapers that a family was missing, a couple reported that earlier that same night, around the same place that the Jacksons had disappeared, that they were also forced from the road by a man driving a green Chevrolet. They said the tall, bushy-haired man stopped them and then menacingly approached them, but they had room to drive around his car, so they reversed and took off out of there. They didn't know until later the tragedy they had narrowly escaped. It was assumed that the family had become victims of foul play, but Mildred's family continued to search on their own every day. The loss of their daughter, son-in-law, and young granddaughters was unbearable. About two months later, they would get some answers, but they would have to wait longer to know what had truly happened. On March 4, 1959, a couple of men were headed to an abandoned sawmill off of what is now Bragg Road. They were going to pick up sawdust to use around one of the men's rose bushes, but when the truck got stuck in the mud, he set out to gather some brush to stick under the wheels for traction. While he was reaching down, gathering up the sticks, he spotted a human leg protruding from the ground. When authorities arrived, they found the body of Carol Jackson in a shallow grave. His baby Janet was in the ground underneath him. Carol, a big strong guy at six foot two, had died from blunt force trauma and a gunshot to the head. The baby had died from suffocation and exposure and had likely been thrown in the hole alive before her father was placed on top of her. Coincidentally, it was just a couple of weeks later that a couple of kids playing in the woods with air rifles near Annapolis, Maryland, noticed what they thought was hair sticking out of the ground. The kids ran home to tell their parents, who called the police. Thus, the bodies of Mildred Jackson and her five-year-old daughter Susan were found. Mildred had been suffocated, and Susan had been bludgeoned. Both had been victims of torture and sexual assault. A search of the area revealed that the bodies were intriguingly close to the abandoned cinder block building police discovered almost two years before during the hunt for Margaret Harold's killer. A search in the interior found a red button for Mildred Jackson's coat, proving that at some point she'd been inside. Because of the method of abduction and the link to the cinder block building, it was decided that both the Jackson family murders and the murder of Margaret Harold were committed by the same person. Because Mildred and Susan Jackson were taken across state lines, the FBI was called in to help with the investigation. A reward was announced and the case received a massive amount of publicity. The roads of Northern Virginia and Maryland were deserted after dark, as locals were terrified of the mysterious bushy-haired man in the dark green Chevy who wanted to do them harm. With the announcement of the reward, leads poured in, including one from a sketchy wanderer named Glenn Moser. Glenn Moser didn't seem like the most reliable source, and so his tip had to wait its turn behind hundreds of others. When police finally got to it, though, they learned that Glenn Moser had a friend who he thought he could be the killer. According to Moser, his pal, Melvin David Reese, 
had often talked of murder when the two were doing drugs together. That, according to Moser, Reese said that murder was just one part of the human experience, and that it couldn't be universally condemned as wrong. Rather, whether it was wrong was up to individual opinion. The last time Moser recalled Reese saying these things to him, that was January 10, 1959, the day before the Jackson family was murdered. He said he had actually confronted him about whether he had killed the family, and though he didn't admit to it, he didn't deny it either. And oh yeah, I think he killed a lady in Maryland a couple of years ago too, Len Moser declared. We worked together back then, selling encyclopedias door to door. Melvin David Reese, 26 years old, was finally on the radar of police. He himself was nowhere to be found, but they diligently questioned the people who knew him. Reese was an accomplished musician, playing piano, saxophone, and clarinet, and jazz ensembles all around the D.C. area. He had briefly attended the University of Maryland, but had not graduated, instead dropping out of school to pursue music full-time. He was a sharp dresser and well-regarded musician, but people who knew him well described a heavy drug user who favored Benzedrine and whose behavior was unpredictable. In 1955, Dave, as he was known by fellow musicians, attempted to abduct a 36-year-old woman at gunpoint by forcing her into his car. She fought back and escaped, but Reese was never prosecuted as she declined to press charges. Friends and family assumed it was just a one-off thing and that Reese would behave himself after that event. Which, I mean, really, come on now. That's not how that works. Knowing now of their suspect's connection to the University of Maryland, they revisited Wanda Tipton, whose UMD yearbook photo had been found in the murderer's lair back in 1957. They showed her a picture of Reese, and she admitted that yes, she did know him. That the two had dated, but she'd broken it off when he said he was married. They showed a picture of Reese to Margaret Harold's soldier boyfriend. He immediately said that yes, this was the man who had attacked them. Authorities knew they had their man. Now they just had to find him. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
Melvin David Reese was born in 1928 in Hyattsville, Maryland, to a reportedly conventional family. His father a telephone worker, his mother a federal employee. Not much is known of his early life, but Reese's family neighbors said they were shocked at what he was accused of. At one point, Reese had married and had a son, but that marriage had broken up. He had joined the Army in 1946 and attained the rank of corporal, playing in the Army band, before asking for a transfer to the Air Force. After his discharge, he had enrolled in classes at the University of Maryland, where he had met Wanda Tempton, and where he had eventually started stalking their surrounding roads for victims. While authorities searched for his latest whereabouts, his old friend Glenn Moser again contacted the police, this time telling them that Reese had called him and told him where he was. He was working in a music store in West Memphis, Arkansas, living with a woman who, as an interesting side note, had been an actress in the Ed Wood movie Orgy of the Dead. They had met in 1959 when she had been a stripper in D.C., performing under the name Vivian Storm and they had moved south together in 1960. On June 24, 1960, almost three years exactly after the murder of Margaret Harold, Melvin David Reese was arrested in West Memphis, Arkansas. News of his capture electrified the media, and the slimly built six-foot-three Reese was dubbed, quote, the sex beast, by newspapers frantically cashing in on the wild story of the handsome jazz musician who had been charged with such unspeakable crimes. He denied any knowledge of the murders he was charged with, and the same day as his arrest, his family's home in Hyattsville, Maryland, was searched. In it, they found a 38 caliber revolver, which matched the one suspected to have been used in the murder of Carol Jackson. They also found diaries, which listed in excruciating detail exactly what he had done to the entire Jackson family. Reese asked for and was given a polygraph test, and while it was never entered into evidence, he failed it spectacularly, implicating himself in a dozen or so crimes. The strongest evidence, however, was two handle grips that were found by the body of Carol Jackson and which were assumed to have been used to bludgeon the man before he was shot. They matched the 38 that was found in the Reese family home. The first trial was a federal one, held in Baltimore, Maryland, for the murders of Mother Mildred Jackson and her five-year-old daughter, Susan. I would love for you to go check out this 2002 article in Fredericksburg Freelance Star for an account of that trial and a lot of the information I recount here in this episode. It was written by a journalist who was assigned to cover the case himself way back in 1961, and it's just gorgeous old-school journalism in the vein of Dan Rather, just beautifully remembered and written in a way that journalists aren't really allowed to do anymore. It's fascinating to hear the writer describe what it was like to be in the courtroom with the killer himself just days after John F. Kennedy's inauguration, how he's impeccably dressed every day in suit and tie, his black hair slicked back and tidy, and how he betrayed zero emotion, as the murders were described. It's like a fascinating time capsule. I encourage you to go to our list of sources on the website and click to read the entire thing. 
Melvin David Reese was given life sentences for each of those murders in his federal trial in Baltimore. But as you know, we here in the Commonwealth tend to be a little more bloodthirsty than our friends up north. Spotsylvania Commonwealth's attorney, T. Stokely Coleman, wanted the death penalty. And so he had Reese extradited to Virginia, where he could still be tried on state charges for the remaining murders. He was tried in Virginia in September of that year, his demeanor still cool as a cucumber, his suits and hair still impeccable. The jury deliberated just 45 minutes before returning a verdict of guilty. The sentence? The electric chair. Courtroom observers say that when he heard he had received the death penalty, Reese flinched for the first and only time. His death penalty sentence triggered myriad automatic appeals, including one to the Virginia Supreme Court and twice to the U.S. Supreme Court. His attorneys complained that the search in the house in Hyattsville was illegal and that the refusal of a change in venue had made his trial unfair as publicity in Spotsylvania County had been so intense that it was impossible to seat an unbiased jury. All of these appeals failed, however. And for years, Melvin David Reese sat on death row. That is, until 1966, when it was relayed to the court that Melvin David Reese had suffered a mental collapse behind bars. No longer his slick and cocky self, a barefoot Reese had to be dragged into court by deputies to answer to the judge. He was barely lucid, but stated that he was sorry for what he had done that he had found God and that he waived all further appeals of his case. The judge sent him to the mental hospital, where it was declared that he was not mentally fit to advocate for himself. His sentence was commuted to life, as it is unlawful to execute an incompetent person. The family of the Jacksons and Margaret Harold were outraged, assuming this was just the final cynical act of an evil man. It is widely thought that Melvin David Reese murdered far more than what he was eventually held accountable for. He took credit for four more murders, but he is only suspected in two of those that he claimed to have done. Specifically, the 1956 murders of Shelby Venable and Mary Fellers, which occurred around the campus of the University of Maryland. He claimed that he had been high on amphetamines for the better part of ten years when he killed the Jackson family. And on that particular night, he had been up for five days straight before he'd said he felt himself, quote, collapse. He said the Jacksons probably thought he was the police when he ran them off the road that night before putting the entire family in the trunk of his car and driving them away to their gruesome ends. Reese himself never explained the motivation behind his murderous acts and he died in prison of heart failure in 1995 at the age of 67. It seems clear from the privileged vantage point of 2020 that he was a sexual sadist, but how he got to that point we can never know. Undoubtedly, his clean-cut demeanor and status as a successful musician helped him move more easily through the world without suspicion. Go to the website and check out the pictures of this guy. He's pretty sharp especially when you throw that automatically classy veneer of 1950s style on top of the whole thing. There's this one picture, though, of him standing behind a blonde woman. I'm not sure who she is, 
if she's his wife from that short-lived marriage or his stripper friend from the Ed Wood movies. She's strikingly beautiful, though, and it's a really cool picture. Until you look at the face of Melvin David Reese standing behind her. Really look at him. And look at his eyes. They're shark's eyes for sure. How many people had he murdered before or after this picture, I can't say. But if nothing else, it's a reminder that these guys can hide a whole lot. But they never can fully hide the truth that's in their eyes. That's it this week, you guys. Remember, if you want to buy me a coffee, the magical liquid that fuels Vile Virginia, there's a link on our website where you can do that. Super grateful for everybody that's bought me a coffee so far. It means a lot. It really does. And I am very thankful for all of you. You guys stay safe out there, and we'll see you next time. For a list of sources or additional information, please visit www.vileVirginia.com or visit our Facebook page. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Six Semper Tyrannus, y'all. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.